0: Uh, so it's been a, actually been a month since we last looked at Revelation. We've had quite a lot gone on in the last month. We had a harvest service, a family service, and then last week we had the London City Mission come and, and visit. So uh, yeah, it's been um, a bit of a gap. So I thought we'd better have a recap of where we were last time. Hopefully you'll remember that we had just finished the uh, seven letters to the seven churches of Asia Minor, modern day Turkey, and we had entered a new stage in the book. Uh, from chapter 4 we start to read the main vision or the main revelation that the book is known for. At the beginning of the chapter we find John has this new vision where he is personally invited into the very throne room of the King of Kings. The vow between our world and heaven is briefly drawn back for John. And Jesus allows him access into the very presence of God and to witness what is happening on the other side of that curtain that separates us from heaven. Remember, we're not talking about some fluffy place way up there in the sky. It's right here. Think less stairway to heaven and more Lion, Witch and a Wardrobe. John had just given this set of messages to pass on from Jesus to the seven churches, but also to all churches everywhere. These messages of challenge, comfort and admonition in the face of all the various hardships that they were facing. The persecution of the Jewish communities and Roman authorities, as well as false teaching and apathy. Jesus called upon John to address these issues and to call these Christians and Christians everywhere to remain strong in the faith, to hold fast to the truth of the gospel, even to the point of death. But then here in chapter 4 onwards, we see the reason why and the reason how. John is confronted with the eternal truth that God is on his throne. He reigns now, he has always reigned and he will always reign. No amount of pressure or persecution or suffering can change that. Our all-powerful majestic God is the ultimate authority over all of history. The vision then begins to give us detail of the throne room where we find verses saturated with Old Testament allusion, particularly from Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7. Do write those down and if you haven't already read through those Just those three chapters, Isaiah 6, Ezekiel 1 and Daniel 7, do read through them because there's so much in there that we'll find in Revelation as well. But do spend time reading through, particularly Ezekiel and Daniel as well, uh, in more detail. The depiction of the one who sits on the throne as well as those that surround it clearly reflects these similar visions experienced by the prophets of old. There are clear references to other times that God has made a revelation to humankind such as the rumblings of thunder and lightning that hint back to when Moses was called up to the mountain to receive the law. And then the final detail that we thought about last time was this sea of glass. You know, we considered the meaning of, of sea, in, of the sea in the Bible, and we thought about how sea was perceived back in, by ancient people at the time. You now whilst we usually think of the seaside as somewhere nice to go and spend our holiday or a day out having some fish and chips... In ancient times, there was a lot more fear associated with the sea. It was the place of Sheol, the depths. Yeah, it was a dark and foreboding place, but it also symbolized separation. God separated the land with the sea, didn't he? The Israelites passed through the separated Red Sea before that same sea, then separated them from their enemies. Jonah even attempted to separate himself from God by crossing the sea. Think about it, if you lived at that time, you would look at the sea knowing that there were other lands over the other side of it and other peoples over there, but you're more likely never to ever see them. Seafaring was reserved for the very few, for traders and, and seafarers, but most people would never cross a sea. And so the sea was this expanse that separated you from the unknown. Well, here in Revelation, this sea is a symbol for the separation of God's holy presence from sinful man. God is holy, we are not. And it is a sea of holiness that separates him from his creation. And this is why later in the book we read of the new heaven and the new earth having no sea. There will no longer be any separation between God and his creation. The victory of the lamb over the beast, of Christ over death and sin, means that the divide will one day be gone forever. And God's people will have intimate fellowship with him always. So this morning we continue where we left off. And we kind of finished halfway through a verse last time, through verse 6. And we finish, sometimes the verses I think are just put in rather strange places. This should blatantly be a new verse, but there you go. Um, So this starts off at the uh, the second part of verse 6, where this depiction of the throne room continues. And in the next five and a half verses, there is a clear theme. In the first half of the chapter, John does his best to give a a depiction of what the throne room looks like and of he who sits on the throne. He does what he can to describe the indescribable. But then here in the second half of chapter 4, he moves away from describing what the throne room looks like to describing instead what is happening in the throne room, the worship of the one on the throne. Now I wonder what comes to mind when you hear that word, worship. What does worship mean to you? Is our idea of what worship is anything like what God deserves and expects from us. This morning, as we look through the rest of this chapter, let's allow it to challenge our preconceptions about worship, but more importantly, to challenge us about whether we are fulfilling our true purpose in life. In the first half of the chapter, we were introduced to the 24 elders who sat on thrones surrounding the central throne of God. Kind think of it in concentric circles. God's in the middle. Got these 24 elders around the outside. Well, here in the second half of verse 6, we meet these four bizarre-sounding living creatures who are seemingly covered by eyes. It's a bit hard for us to kind of get our heads around what these things look like. We have one that resembles a lion, one like an ox, another like a man, and finally one like an eagle in flight. Now, like these 24 elders, these four creatures are also surrounding the throne, one on each side. So I think the vision is of God in the middle, these four creatures, and then the 24 elders around them. If you know your Old Testament, then the, the description of these creatures should sound familiar. and alluded to earlier with those uh, readings from Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. Let's look at uh, Ezekiel 1. If you've got your Bibles, open up Ezekiel 1. If you look at verse 5, it says this And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, but each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. But then flick down to verse 10. As for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had the face of a lion on the right side, the four had the face of an ox on the left side, and the four had the face of an eagle. And then flicking on to verse 18, it's uh, describing the chariots and the wheels of the chariots. and It says, and the rims were tall and awesome, and the rims of all four were full and covered with eyes all around. So you can see there are similarities, but also differences between these creatures. In Ezekiel, they had a human form, but with four faces. Whereas here in Revelation, they take the form of the four creatures mentioned in Ezekiel, a lion, an ox, a human and an eagle. Their function in Ezekiel, if you read through that chapter, is to draw God's throne chariot, whereas here they perform a different function. Here they are representatives of all of creation. The lion represents the king of the wild beasts, as well as honour and nobility. The ox represents tamed animals, as well as sacrifice and work. The man represents humanity, but also intelligence and spirituality. And then the eagle is the king of the winged animals, but also of strength and grace. The four creatures are on all four sides of the throne, demonstrating that in the proper order of things, all creation glorifies the creator. They represent the created world turning in praise to the one on the throne. Their six wings allude back to Isaiah's description of the throne room in Isaiah 6 and verse 2, where it says, Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So we know these creatures are some sort of celestial beings, possibly angels. But what about all those eyes? Well, again, this is an allusion back to those wheels on the chariot in Ezekiel uh, 1. Having eyes all around and within suggests a constant alertness and an unceasing vigilance over God's creation. They oversee the affairs of the world. And later on in the book, they are the ones who God uh, uses to call forward the four horsemen in chapter 6. And they are also involved in the passing on of the seven bowls of judgment in chapter 15. So the creatures perform a dual purpose, that of worship, but also that of service. So in these creatures, we have a glimpse of how creation should function when it is in tune with God's will. How creation properly worships its creator, both in its praise of him and its service of him. That worship, we are told in verse 8, is unceasing. They never rest from their worship, neither by day nor by night. Creation is unceasing in its worship of God. Psalm 96 talks of creation praising its creator. says this, Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord. In Psalm 148, similar, it says, Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens, and you waters above the heavens. Praise the Lord from the earth, you great sea creatures and all deeps. Fire and hail, snow and mist, stormy wind fulfilling his word. Mountains and all hills. Fruit trees and all cedars, beasts and all livestock, creeping things and flying birds. The psalmist is being as comprehensive as they can. The perfect beauty and nature of creation points to God in its own worship. You know, in our home groups over the past few weeks, we've been looking at the book of Romans, haven't we? And in chapter one of that letter, we read of how all creation points to God. Verse 20 says for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that that have been made. All creation worships God through its very being and that is what the four creatures here represent in their praise. All of creation dependent on God and worshiping him in its own way. The hymn sung at the end of verse 8 is the first of several hymns that are sung throughout the book. And interestingly, this first hymn is sung only by the four creatures. But as the book continues and we find more of these hymns, the choir gets louder and louder, with more and more voices joining, until finally every creature in heaven and earth are singing his praises. The first hymn is the hymn sung by these representatives of creation, and it echoes a similar hymn back in Isaiah again, Isaiah 6, verse 3, where in Isaiah it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And it recognizes three attributes of God in this one in Revelation it recognizes his holiness, his omnipotence, and his eternal nature. The first is his holiness. The hymn of praise begins with a threefold holy, holy, holy. Yeah, you know, if you remember, we've talked about numbers before. That number three in scripture, it represents completeness or perfection. It's similar, in a way, to number seven. When a rabbi taught his disciples, if he repeated something three times, it meant sit up, pay attention, and listen to what I'm saying to you. God is holy, holy, holy. Completely and perfectly set apart. And then he is the Lord Almighty. Or in Greek, it's the Pantocrator. It's Pantocrator. Um, like the word autocrat. Pantocrata means all-powerful one, whereas the Roman emperor and many other earthly rulers throughout history rule as autocrats, those who demand obedience and authority. God doesn't need to demand such authority. It is naturally his. He is the ruler over all. And finally, he is the one who was and is and is to come. In other words, he is eternal. He's always been and always will be. I tried explaining this to the kids at a club on Monday. One of them asked me, who made God? It's one of those questions that, that kids like to ask, and it's good to be asked and to think about these things. Um, and it's not easy to explain, is it? It's not easy to get a head around it. Everything that we know has a beginning, doesn't it? You know, this church building, the chairs you're sitting on, you know, the, the world, the universe, everything has a beginning. Either someone has made it or it was born. Everything that we experience in life has a beginning. To understand that there is a being that sits outside of that world view is quite hard to understand. Our little brains can't really comprehend it. But that's God. He wasn't made, he wasn't born, he doesn't have a beginning and he has no end. And that alone should surely be enough to cause us to worship him and praise him. And that is why creation praises him. Because it is the creation of the uncreated one. Verse 9 re-emphasises this hymn. God is the one who is seated on the throne. Again, he is the Lord Almighty, the ruler of all things everywhere. And he is the one who lives forever and ever. Again, echoing his eternal nature. But it is what the creatures give to God that I want us to focus on for a moment. They give him glory, honour and thanks. And as I read this, I was again reminded of that study in Romans we were doing. After Paul has made it clear that all creation points to the creator, he said that there are those who still refuse to acknowledge him, even though they are, as he puts it, without excuse. Whilst the creatures of Revelation give God glory, honour and thanks, Paul says that these unrighteous people fail to honour him or give thanks to him. This is surely then one part of the heart of true worship giving God the glory, honour and thanks in everything and for everything. In fact, Paul goes on in that opening chapter of Romans to say that instead of giving God the honour and thanks that he deserves, they instead have turned their worship to idols, to the created rather than to the creator. And this is surely a challenge to us. Where is our worship directed? To the one who created all, who provides for us, who blesses us with everything that we have or is it to the things that we desire or those things that we've stored up for ourselves or is it to self-gratification or pleasure are we worshipping the creator or the created now how do I know where my worship is directed well what consumes my time, my thoughts, my finances, my internet history When we are blessed with something, do our thoughts turn to thanks to the one who has provided it or do we self-congratulate ourselves? And where is our honour directed? To honour something is to bow in respect and submission to something. There is only one to whom that honour should go. But do we submit ourselves to other gods? You know the list. Money, status, self-promotion, temporary pleasures, that new car, a nice house social media, pornography, addiction. The list is very, very long. I might not have mentioned your God in that list, but search your heart, and I'm sure there is one in your life that sometimes, or maybe often, takes a place of God. The vision then shifts focus and returns to the 24 elders that we heard about earlier. Now remember, whilst the four creatures represent God's creation... The elders are representatives of God's people of His church. Here, the worship of the four living creatures prompts them into their own worship. Here we see the nature of true worship. They fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they cast their thrones before the throne. sorry, they cast their crowns before the throne before singing their own hymn of praise. Their worship is total. They offer God not only their words, but their own glory. To fall at the feet of a ruler in ancient times was to demonstrate your willingness to submit to their rule. In antiquity, a common sign of being submissive was taking off the diadem, the crown, of a conquered ruler and placing it at the feet of the one that had conquered them. It was a public sign of submission and a giving up of one's own glory. It's a humble recognition of someone greater than you. God doesn't seek to conquer us like an earthly ruler, an earthly emperor. He will not beat us into submission. But he does seek to conquer your hearts, to have us live under his perfect rule. But he invites us to do that of our own free will. We don't need to cast our crowns under the threat of a sword, we do it because we should. Worshipping God involves literally giving him the glory giving him our own glory? Have we truly fallen at his feet in honour and recognition of who he is? Have we given up all of our own glory and placed it before him, recognising that he is greater than all of it? Or are we still clinging on to our own image, our own pride, our own sense of self-importance? Now, if you've really laid it all before him, ask yourself this question, how many people have you told about Jesus this week? surely if you'd given up all of your pride and self-importance what holds you back from sharing the amazing news of the gospel don't worry i ask myself the same question the chapter finishes with the hymn of the 24 elders and there is one big difference in this hymn compared to the one sung by the four living creatures it's a big difference but it's not particularly easy to spot because it's in one word if you've got your bibles have them open on that that hymn It's in the word for, or in some translations, because. The third line of this hymn of praise says, For you created, or or because, you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. One little word, but it brings so much meaning. Scientists and anthropologists have often sought to establish the difference between human beings and animals. Just what sets us apart from the rest of the animal kingdom? Some scientists would just suggest that we're naked apes, slightly more sophisticated maybe, but still of the same ilk. Well, when we compare the two hymns of chapter 4 of Revelation, we get an answer to that question. Human beings can say the word because. As we've already seen, the four creatures represent the whole of creation. The song of these creatures is simply an act of adoring praise, and their very existence and reliance on God is their own act of worship. But then there is a contrast between the four creatures and the 24 elders. Creation as a whole simply worships God. The humans that represent all of God's people understand why they do so. They can say because. They can say that because of their praise, the reasons behind their praise. You are worthy of all this praise because you created all things. There it is, the because that distinguishes humans from the rest of the animal kingdom. Humans are God's special creation, and we were given the capacity to reflect, to understand what's going on, and in particular to express that understanding in worship. Worship, after all, is the most central of human activities. Worship is what we were made for, whether you want to believe that or not. Worship with a because in it. And that is why this scene in the throne room is the foundation for all that follows in Revelation. All that is to come flows from the fact that the whole creation is called to worship the one true God as its creator. The profound problems within that creation means that the creator must act decisively to put things right. Not because creation is bad and he's angry with it, but because it's good and he's angry with the forces that have corrupted it and defaced it and which threaten to destroy it. And in the coming chapters, we'll begin to see just how he goes about putting things right in the past, in the present, and in the future. Worship is what we were made for. And whether we realise it or not, we do it constantly for every day. The problem comes when that worship is directed to the wrong God. Yesterday, some of us, as Dave said earlier, went to the, the Essex Men's Conference in Danbury. And it was a great day. Rico Tice... if you've seen the Christianity Explored materials, you know who Rico Tice is. He's the one that presents it. He was great. And one of the things that he challenged us about was how we start our day. Do we begin our day reading our Bibles by directing our thoughts at the start of each and every day towards God? But also, are we starting our day thinking about the things that we struggle with? Those sins in our life that have a pretty firm foothold. In other words, those gods that we are worshipping every day. You see, if we do not challenge ourselves each and every day about the things that we have placed above God in our worship, then those things will never become smaller in our lives. Instead, they'll only become greater. They will only take the place of God more and more in our lives until one day God is barely found within us at all. We thought a bit about Achan, Achan's sin in Joshua i sure you know the story and how he put the plunder, the gold, the silver and fine clothes before God. And what was God's warning? Joshua 7, 12. I will be with you no more. I will be with you no more. Imagine God saying that to you. Chris, I will be with you no more. Esther, I will be with you no more. Brian, I will be with you no more. Put your name there. I will be with you no more. Imagine God saying that to you. It's not that God walks away from us. After all, the Bible tells us in the, in the book before in Deuteronomy that he will never leave us or forsake us. But the reason that he'll be with us no more is that we've made it impossible for him to be within our lives anymore because our worship is no longer directed at him. Our worship is directed at other things, other gods that we fall down before each and every day, that we cast our crowns before each and every day. Like those, conquerors, sorry, those conquered rulers of old, we have given our submission, our control, over to sinful lusts, to money, to unhealthy desires, to career progression, to our appearance. And again, the list could go on for a very long time because there is much that we put before God. You know yourself what that thing is in your own life. You know, when you stop and think about it, what it is that gets your worship each day. And I think one of the reasons, or the main reason, that we allow these gods and idols to take such a prominent position in our hearts and minds is because we don't start each day thinking about the because of our worship. I worship that thing because. If there are things in our life that we're worshipping more than God, then we need to stop and think, why am I spending so much time thinking about my money or my image, or a sexual fantasy, or anything else. Only when we allow ourselves to understand that because the reason behind our worship of those things will we realise that there is a motivating factor, self. Like any sin, self is at the root. Love of self over love of God and other people. When we realise that and challenge ourselves over that, at the start of each and every single day, then we give ourselves a fighting chance of relegating those things to where they belong in the past. And then we can start thinking about a completely different because. The because of our worship of God. Why do I worship God? Because he is the creator of all things. When I look outside my window at home, I'm confronted by just a taste Of his awesome creative wonder. But even in the fact that the sun is in the sky doing its daily rounds, that it might be raining watering the earth to bring new life, that trees are full of leaves going through the process of photosynthesis and replenishing our air with the oxygen that we need, that there's incredibly delicate and intricate birds somehow defying gravity and flying through the sky. And that's just when I look out my window of my house. Because he has put all of that into motion, into being, I must surely worship him. Because I'm in a warm, safe house looking out of that window, at all of those things with eyes that enable me to see, and a complex brain that allows me to not only process those images, but to also allow emotion of joy and wonder to rise up within me, I must surely worship him. Because he provides for my needs, because he loves me, because he gave us Jesus. Because he raised Jesus to give us a new life. Because he promises us an eternity with him for all who believe. Because, because, because I must worship him. So as we finish this morning, I'm just going to challenge you to start off every single day this week and moving forward with one word in mind. And let's see how that one word has the potential to not only transform our praise and worship of God, but also to allow us to put aside the things that we need to say goodbye to in our lives. Write it down on a post-it note by your bed. Set a daily reminder on your phone. Stick it under a magnet on the fridge. Whatever you need to do to remember. But when you wake up tomorrow morning, and each morning, remember this one word, because.